Greetings, everyone. Uh, today's episode is dedicated to our longtime friend and sustaining patron, Bertram Manitz. Bert was born in 1943 in South London, in the shadow of the Valley, the Charlton Athletic football ground. He was and remains an Arsenal supporter, though. His father was a fan of the Arsenal player Dennis Compton. Compton was also a star of the England cricket team, uh, featuring in 78 tests and a very famous sportsman of the time. Uh, Bert studied to be a metallurgist and worked in the Midlands, England's industrial heartland, for many years. He moved to Canada and became a Canadian citizen, and still later moved to the U.S., first to Texas, then Delaware, working as a materials engineer for DuPont. Bert is a writer, famously penning a well-known technical manual on welding, even though he's never wielded the torch himself. He contributed his skills to other scientific works with titles like Corrosion, Its Detection and Control in Injection Wells, and Repair and Damage Assessments for Glass-Lined Equipment. Uh, but he's also a poet, a rock on tour, and an all-around renaissance man. Last Friday, Bert became a U.S. citizen. I asked why he would do this now, and he said, it's like the stock market. You should always buy in at the absolute rock bottom. So I think he's accomplished that. Uh, so congratulations, Bert. You're, in, you're a yank now like the rest of us. Um, and this episode's for you. Hello, friends and comrades. This is your weekly episode of the Highlands Bunker podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower, agitating against the Delaware Way elites. Carl is monitoring the levels remotely. Uh, before we begin, a quick shout out to our friend and patron, Greg. He's been back to Two Stones Brewery, uh, lending a hand over there. Uh, with the pub shuttered, the canning process has, has sustained them through the COVID shutdown. And over the past few months, they've been churning out Delco Fest seasonal lager. It's the traditional Oktoberfest beer, a lovely Marzen for the time when summer turns to autumn. Uh, Greg continues to provide the bunker with the best type of beer, free beer. So thank you, Greg. Thank you, Two Stones. Uh, Two Stones Brewery, whatever they don't drink, they can. Uh, our guest today is Alex Hess. Alex is a London-based writer whose work has appeared in Jacobin, The Guardian, Vice, Tribune, and other places. Uh, he recently wrote a piece in Jacobin UK titled, How Capitalism Changed Football for the Worst. I am pleased to welcome Alex Hess to Highlands Bunker. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming in. Hi, no worries. Thank you. Yeah, much appreciated. Uh, so I remember in 2008, Portsmouth won the FA Cup, uh, defeating Cardiff City 1-0 at Wembley. Uh, they returned to the final in 2010, uh, but had already been relegated from the Premier League. Uh, they lost the final to Chelsea, and that began their slide into bankruptcy. Um, this was the first club I remember sort of sliding into financial oblivion. Uh, and Alex, you begin your article with the story of Wigan Athletic. Um, what is the Laddick's tale of woe? Well, it's, it's not the same. I think like all, like the um, growing number of clubs that are uh, kind of facing uh, oblivion these days. It, it's always framed as a kind of matter of mismanagement um, on an individual level. So there, 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 there's some terrible decisions. Uh, um, so there's a, there's a kind of combination of bad decisions and, and kind of self-interest and, and asset stripping and all the rest of it in all these instances, I guess. Um, what you, What is less... Um, Headline grabbing, but perhaps more important is, is just the lack of regulation, uh, the kind of absence of regulation and management from 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 the sport in general that kind of allows these uh, 
these instances to continue happening and, and to kind of happen at a greater at a greater rate these days. I mean, it it before the Premier League was was um, was brought into existence in 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 the early nineties, there'd been ten clubs in England that that um, gone into administration ever, and since then uh, there's been there's been something like 30 or 40, I can't remember the exact number, but it's, 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 it's kind of accelerated at a, at a pretty startling rate since then. And, and obviously during that same time, the, the wealthiest clubs have gotten spectacularly more wealthy. Um, Portsmouth is a good example because they would also, a bit like the Leicester uh, title win a few years ago, would, would also be held up as a, as proof that 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 uh, football is a sport where you know and the underdog can always win and, and these sort of fairy tales happen. Um, these sort of fairy tales are possible, but in in actual fact, they're more and more the the, the kind of outlier. Yeah, I, I want to kind of get into that too because later on I want to talk about the impact of sort of money in the game across Europe um, because we see some of the same impacts um, in the other large leagues in Europe, in Liga, in France, in the Bundesliga, um, and in Spain. Um, but you mentioned, and I think this is the start of it, that the Premier League is actually sort of a breakaway, a breakaway project from the Football League tier system. So if people don't know, um, you know, for a long, long time, the, the, the Football League was just a, a series of divisions where teams could go up and down um, if they win the league or come in the top, they move up. If they are in the bottom, they move down and so forth. But then in the early 90s, um, they started basically a, a – was that the – it might have been the first one in Europe, uh, basically a top league that, that basically created their own TV deal. Um, so for, for money, because regulations were, were very light, they were able to break away and do their own, do their own sort of deal. And that was sort of the beginning of – the separation, uh, you know, and we see it in all aspects of our economy here in the States and in Europe, um, just the, the rich getting much, much richer uh, to the detriment of everyone else. Um, I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about the background of that, that time when the, when the first division became the Premier League and um, sort of what was, the, what was the background of that? Yeah, like, I mean, like you said, it, it was a kind of breakaway project and it, and it, was, it was the brainchild of the biggest... The, I think they were they, they, sort of, they were sort of known as the big six at the time or the big five, I think. But um, the, um, the the biggest clubs in the country, and yeah, the, like you said, they negotiated their own TV deal, and it was basically it was just it was the the money of Rupert Murdoch's Sky B Sky B as it was known at the time uh, that that kind of bankrolled the what was it what was at the time kind of a, a, a relatively low profile move but has but the, the premier league has since become this kind of snowballing entity that uh that whose broadcast deals each year have, have gotten more and more and more and more uh, well huge um and yeah i guess the, the the point of that piece was to kind of draw a parallel with the way that British, British football in that in that era, the sort of early to mid '90s, was kind of cheerfully embracing uh, a kind of 
entertainment capitalism uh, and and courting the sort of wealthy institutions of, of, of the world I guess in, in much the same way that the, the British um, the British politics was too I mean Blair's government continued the deregulation of the banking sector that, that had happened in the 80s and 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 were kind of openly courting them in uh, the Murdoch press as well as the kind of big banks and the kind of financial industry uh, and 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 at the time it was seen as a kind of it, it, now that seems a kind of horrible seedy ominous route to go down at the time I don't think it, it was it was kind of presented anyway as a, as a sort of uh, a friendly face of, of, of modern capitalist government, I guess, and I, I would, football um, followed that lead. And I think um, in both instances, in football, and kind of reflects the, the British has reflected the British economy in the years since, in the way that the super rich of, I mean, this idea, even this this idea that there's such a thing as the super rich is quite a recent, you know invention um but the, the the rich have gotten astronomically more rich while the, the poor have become uh, a, a majority and, a, and an increasingly kind of on an increasingly sort of hand-to-mouth existence yeah well let's talk I, there's a there's a story i think that um that you you mentioned briefly maybe you can expound on it that that i think is uh that illustrates this situation very well and i guess it was during the the blair uh administration uh when the banks were were, were being uh, deregulated and there was a lot of opportunity for foreign investment um, in real estate and other things, um, as there is in the United States, New York uh, is very well known for this. But the 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 Russian oligarch and oil tycoon uh, Roman Abramovich is flying around in a in a helicopter over London and and sees Stamford Bridge, the the Chelsea ground, and just as a as something he thought would be fun to do with his billions and billions of dollars uh, or pounds, uh, decides to, to purchase uh, Chelsea Football Club. And to me, I think that was the f- that might have been the first inkling that this this big wave of foreign money and, and money in general was just going to flow in and really change the change the the context or ch- or change what the what the league and what the game really was um i don't know if you could uh, add some details to that or just your thoughts about the abramovich uh purchase of chelsea yeah well i mean i, I guess by that stage the, that was 2003 so by that stage the, the sort of money was already rolling in from the broadcasters which which made buying a premier league club such an attractive proposition for a kind of russian billionaire um it was a landmark moment in the sense that it it was kind of the first time a football club kind of openly became kind of personal property of a tycoon and became a kind of plaything in the in the way that um, plenty more have since. Um, and I guess now that 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 move almost seems kind of quaint and and uh, and small time because. We now like in, we now live in an era where like entire sort of Gulf states are are adding football clubs to their portfolio, not so much as a as a plaything or or as, as a bit of fun, but as a as a kind of active sort of propaganda arm to to what is a what is a much broader kind of political and financial project, a global 
political project. So, I mean, the, the idea of, of one Russian billionaire buying a club for his own for his own kind of entertainment now seems quite quite sweet. Uh, these days, it's it's um, it's state who are kind of um, commandeering football clubs for much better thought out uh, <laughs> purposes, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think the most uh, the the one folks talk about the most uh, is is City. Manchester City is, is owned by a consortium uh, of 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 uh, folks from Abu Dhabi, I guess, uh, government officials and, and oil sort of barons uh, from Abu Dhabi. And uh, as you said, the it's more of a propaganda tool. Um, it's the, and and the the thing that has. I think impacted the enjoyment for somebody who's just a fan of the game is that because of the very light touch of uh, any regulation, they're able to to spend, I mean, basically what is unlimited amounts of cash. Um, uh, and, and it's completely unchecked. Um, there are checks, and, and you mentioned um, one of them about just foreign foreign groups and foreign folks wanting to buy that asset really have to go through some uh, some process but it's more of a rubber stamp process yeah I mean, uh, it, it, in, in England at least it, 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 that process is called the fit and proper persons test which is kind of now uh, a kind of self-parodying title because you know so many owners have passed that test taken control of clubs and then driven them into the ground but what it is basically is, is a is a is a is a criminal convictions uh, check um i mean i think you can even have criminal convictions and, and buy a club but you put you can't have certain ones within a certain time um but no i mean there's no sort of moral or ethical or there's no test of someone's motivations or, or their sort of long-term plan which is i guess quite important when you're talking about taking over what what are still thought of as kind of community institutions yeah, yeah symbols I mean, I, of a certain place and, and a certain culture yeah I, I think that's what a lot of um maybe american fans don't understand as much if if they're not uh, older or they don't understand the history is and, and you cover this quite nicely in your piece is that because the old-fashioned way was everybody, you know, all the pro teams were in the same sort of tiered system, you know, you had smaller clubs that were, you know, um, in smaller towns and villages that, you know, were sort of competing in the same way as everyone else. Um, now you don't have that anymore. Um, I, I, I sort of compare it in the United States to our, our baseball system. Uh, we, there is a minor league system, but they're connected to the larger major league teams. And there's no promotion or relegation, but the minor league teams in some cases do have a, a big following in smaller towns, smaller cities, even rural areas, which um, I think that's the connection that a lot of these clubs have. But now because they're they are independent, they're not tied to any you know, larger thing. Uh, they're they're struggling. A lot of them uh, in the northeast uh, of, of England that you talk about. Um, Maybe you can talk about a few of those and sort of highlight a couple North of those. Northwest, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, that, that's another way I, I think that, that football would just generally sort of come to reflect the, the country as a whole in that, in that it's just so it's completely um, centralised around London and the big cities. And if you're outside of 
if you're outside of London, you're in trouble. And if you're outside of London and the handful of big cities outside of it, then you're in, you, you, you're kind of fenced off in a, in a huge way. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's various clubs. These are all within a kind of stone's throw of each other, kind of coincidentally, but also kind of not. Um, so you've got like Oldham, who were in the Premier League when it was founded in 1992, who were in administration at, by 2009. Blackpool, who, did, who managed to get promotion to the Premier League in around 2010 or something. They've been in trouble for a few years and almost went out of business uh, due to some really, really sort of <laughs> unpleasant owners. Um, there's Macclesfield, who are continuing to be in trouble, and then there's Berry, who last year went out, did go out of business completely. I mean, they still exist, I believe, but not as a football club anymore. They just exist as a kind of legal entity. Um, but those are all within a, you can kind of chuck a blanket over the stadiums of all those clubs. Um, and they're all sort of on the outskirts of, of the big cities in. In the, in the northwest, Manchester and Liverpool, they're all kind of dotted around there, but 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 very much provincial. And then within those big cities, you've got the two Manchester clubs who are, you know, the powerhouses of England and and Liverpool, who who just won the, who've just won the league and and the World Cup and the Champions League and everything else. And you've got this kind of unpleasant juxtaposition of the the super rich and the super successful with the the completely destitute and and, and hopeless. And I think that is that kind of does reflect uh, the country in, in general these days. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, as I said, the the only hope seems to be, and, and you mentioned Leicester uh, is getting some sort of benefactor. It goes right back to the sort of the capitalist idea that what it needs is uh, just you know money pumped in, unlimited money to see you know, how it can be done. In Leicester, you know, unfortunately, they, have, they had a late chairman who uh, died in a, in, a, in, a, in a helicopter crash, uh, and he was more or less beloved. But there are other places, like in Germany, uh, where a corporation has take, taken over Leipzig, uh, Red Bull, uh, and taken them from, I think, the fourth division all the way up to the top of the Bundesliga. Uh, they play in the, in the Champions League in the, in the European uh, Cup competition. But basically, we're taken from obscurity um, as a as a corporate project as a corporate project. Exactly. I mean, they're almost like a startup. I mean, that, that, that's a whole that's a whole sort of another um, model of kind of unattractive un modern ownership. They're almost like a startup company that are not exactly an, an advertising platform, but they you know they exist to serve the the Red Bull Corporation and. Um, you know they have fans and and the fans support the club much like any other fans support any other club. But um, the difference is, I guess, other clubs began life as a community institution, and, and you could kind of argue they've since been hijacked by corporate interests. Whereas RB Leipzig, RB standing for Red Bull, even though it sort of technically doesn't due to sponsorship rules. RB Leipzig are kind of purpose built to um, to serve corporate interests which is um which if, if if you want to see football clubs as 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 sort of soulful community institutions that's about as far as you, as you can get from, from one of those yeah uh there's also a rule and I, i'd like to get your uh, sort of opinion on it or a, or a guideline 
and not that we expect FIFA or UEFA to uh, to manage anything, you know, on the up and up, but they have something called financial fair play, uh, which is which is supposed to assuage some of these large financial differences, at least with the top clubs. Uh, and they, I, I I guess the best way to describe it is that they've come up with sort of a, a calculation or, or a series of algorithms that are supposed to figure out, you know, you can't just spend money to lose money when other clubs just don't have the financial backing to do that, um, which makes sense on the face of it, but when it's applied, it never seems to, no action seems to be taken. Uh, Manchester City uh, in England um, seem to be, you know, they, they, can, they can sign a player for, you know, 40, 50, 60 million pounds uh and there are teams in either lower in the premier league or even in the championship in the second division who can't pay that to their entire side um but then when the rule comes to be enforced um somehow um it isn't and there are no penalties uh for manchester city um there's the same uh can be said uh for paris saint-germain in in france uh and and some other clubs across the the continent uh, I wonder what your what your take is on that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not an expert on, on financial fair play. What what I gather from what I gather that there's basically two there's two problems with it. One is that, like you say, what it claims to uphold is is seems not to be enforced in in the strict way it needs to be. Like you said, Man City have just managed to overturn a a. a um, a, a, a ban from European football for breaking FFP regulations, and, and they basically, you know, Abu Dhabi paid for the, the, a team of the world's most expensive lawyers to, to take the UEFA to court, to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and, and they won. And that's a problem for FFP if it can be kind of, <laughs> if it can be overturned by a very expensive law. If, if their if they're, um, verdicts can be overturned by a team of Highly paid lawyers is sort of a, a failure of, of its its function. But the second problem is you, sh- you can or should be only um, spending a certain proportion of I think it's of a club's turnover, maybe, um, which sounds great and does sort of that does uh, promote a sustainable business models, which is important um, when we're talking about clubs going into the ground. But also, it kind of it also has the either either uh, unintended or, or very much intended uh, byproduct of ring fencing the the clubs that are huge commercial entities that bring in uh, shitloads of, of money from global fan base. Um, you know, it ring fences their position at the top of the game because how how is any other club meant to meant to um, and to break through that glass ceiling, I guess, because if, if, when you talk about clubs like Man United, Liverpool, um, Man City, Arsenal, Real Madrid, Barcelona, etc., I mean, these are enormous, like enormous commercial uh, operations that that bring in all sorts of money from merchandising and, and all else, and. If the problem with football is that, that these clubs have kind of got a permanent sort of fixture at the top of their respective leagues, just at the top of the game, and it's kind of an anti-competitive uh, 
stratification of, of, of club football than financial fair play, although it kind of seems like a good idea and is in many ways a, a decent idea, doesn't do anything. I mean, it only sort of, it only redoubles that, that kind of problem, I, I suppose. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it was lots of, lot was made of FFP when it came in a few years ago and it was a reaction to this, um, to this series of, of kind of, uh, of clubs being bought by, by mega rich other individuals or companies or states, whatever, and just spending their way to the top. But while it does kind of, to some extent, prevent that from happening in theory, it, or it, it also means that the elite are doubly protected. Yeah, I, you know, and up and down the, up and down all of the tiers uh, of English football, we, we've seen supporter backlash about different aspects of this. Uh, Newcastle United has, has had a, uh, an interesting relationship with their ownership group. Um, uh, there's been, there was another, I, I don't know if it was Charlton Athletic, or there, there was some, one of the lower league teams had, a, had a, just a Belgian sort of corporation own their team. Char, it was Charlton Athletic, yeah. And, and, and there was sort of a fan backlash. Uh, and, you know, if, if they, you know, Charlton being in London at least could, could muster, you know, some sort of supporter um, action. Uh, has, has there been uh, any activity at the grassroots to try to address some of the, dis some of the disparity, um, to try to stand some of these teams up or propose any kind of changes or... Is the Premier League and the money just um, just too much to fight, and 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 it's just it's going to continue like this? Do you think? There's not much. I, I guess there's there's not a whole lot of um, movement in terms of the, the, the any sort of a trickle down model actually coming into play. Like like you said, when clubs do get uh, fall into the hands of, of owners who's who who don't have the club's interests. At heart, and tend to just and, and want to just bleed them dry, like Newcastle. There's there is always a, a impassioned fan response, and sometimes it sometimes it's effective, and sometimes not. I mean, the, Newcastle are one of the more dismaying cases because Mike Ashley has been has been uh, in charge of that club for about ten years or so, and has been unpopular from day one, and has generally speaking, kind of um, not not been good for the club's sort of upward mobility. I mean, they've, they've been relegated a couple of times and they're, they're never going to be a competitive club under his ownership. Um, on top of that, he's basically turned the stadium into a kind of advertising hoarding for his for his sportswear shops. But um, well, in, that, in that instance, the fans kind of protest have faded away and it's an apathy has become the, the kind of general feeling. Um, so that, I mean, that's one of the, the, the less, less, <laughs> the less inspiring instances. Um, but no, I mean, I think in general, I don't think there's, I, I think the, there's, a, there's a sort of largely speaking an acceptance that the, the, the big Premier League clubs are, are their own fenced off, Velvet rope club these days, and and there's there's sort of um, there's fun to be had 
outside the Premier League, there's been a, there's been a lot of movement towards lower league and non-league football. I think in, in reaction to to um, kind of money, the, the money that's sloshing around at the top, and I think a lot of fans think that um, that going back to square one and, and kind of and going well back when you could go to games, going to sort of see your local lower league club is, is a more kind of um, invigorating experience than paying the best part of 100 quid to go and sit in a kind of super sleek modern stadium and uh, in a, without much atmosphere and, and watch a game whose result you could kind of predict before the, the ball's been kicked. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's my assessment of it anyway. Yeah, I mean, here, uh, I'm lucky enough to be a little bit older, and, and our group of friends here in the neighborhood, well, you know, we have a few a few friends who were born uh, in the UK or have been following teams for a long time, and, and we enjoy being able to watch the championship when we can get it um, because, as you said, it's competitive, it's a little more fun, um, it's not a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a huge, uh, you know, uh, West End production or Broadway production ch- trying to sell you, uh, you know, trips to Malaysia or, or fly Emirates or, or whatever. Um, I think, as a matter of fact, I believe the all of the or most of the championship clubs have uh, this, uh, the same kit sponsor. They have basically the same sort of uniform style or kit style, um, which is which is pretty neat. Um, but, yeah, we appreciate that that kind of stuff because it, it's not, um, you know, it's not glitzy. Uh, it's not uh, a big production. It's just the, the football like we remember it from 30 years ago. So um, yeah, that's sort of something that we follow, too. Uh, so just to close out, I want to have a, a little discussion because this is you, you, you had another piece recently uh, about Gareth Bale. And uh, I know when my friends, uh, when all my mates around here hear this, they're going to laugh because uh, I've been a, a lifelong Spurs fan since since the 80s. Um, and, yeah, I remember the day that Bale made the hat trick at the San Siro. And I, I, I celebrated for a day. And then uh, someone uh, sent me a text message, I think, and said, well, he'll be gone to, to La Liga next year. And, and, of course, I couldn't argue because I knew that that was true. Uh, and he was bought uh, for a, a, just a, a massive fee um, to go to Madrid. Uh, and then, you know, Spurs sort of went back to middling uh, pretty much, uh, you know, they've had some success, but no, no trophies. Uh, and now, you know, many years on, uh, at, at Madrid, uh, the, the shine is off, uh, is off of Gareth Bale. And there's some talk that he was, I guess, like a bust at Madrid. But when you look at the, when you look at the performance, especially the first few years and the number of trophies that they've won while he's been there, it's almost impossible to, to think that that was a failure, um, but your your piece sort of gets into that, so I'd like you to give me sort of give everybody the the details of it and sort of your take of it, and then um, I'll probably make a plea to get Gareth Bale back on Spurs. Oh yeah, I mean he went to Madrid seven years ago and has since won, I think four Champions Leagues, um, a couple of league titles. He scored insanely good goals in in um, insanely important games. Uh, a couple of European Super Cups, a couple of Club World Cups. Um, he's scored over 100 goals. Uh, he's been made the highest paid player in the world at one point. He, he was made the 
the most valuable player in the world by moving there. So it's difficult to look at all that and think that and think it's going to be looked back on as a kind of bleak, disappointing, and and uh, and kind of a <laughs> miserable spell. But that seems to be the way it, it will be. How it's gotten to that point is, is odd. I mean, he has basically not endeared himself to the fans, either, either fairly or otherwise. I mean, he, he's not he's not um, embedded himself in the Spanish culture. No one seems to know whether or not he speaks Spanish or how well um, he's his teammates. He, he seems fairly separate from his teammates, quite an aloof figure. Um, but that in itself isn't enough to kind of paint such a paint it in such a negative way. He's been fro- he's been frozen out by his manager a couple of times recently, um, and it's just it's just a kind of very weird situation. Um, but I think it, it, a lot of it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is is that the the, um, the biggest clubs are kind of dominate their leagues to such an extent that that, that kind of glory in trophies that, that that are just reeled off don't seem to don't seem to actually be worth as much as they should. I mean um, Spain is basically a two horse league. So you, you, you Real Madrid are, are essentially going to win the league half the time. Um, which takes away the, the takes away the sort of glow of victory a little bit whenever it does happen. Um, in Germany, they, uh, Bayern Munich have just won it for the eighth time in a row. In France, I think it's six or seven. In Italy, it's something similar. So there's this pattern among the top, across the top leagues, where the the, the level of dominance by the top teams is, is becoming like, you know, almost a monopoly. Um, so I guess that that means that the, the more of some, the more there is of something, the, the less it's worth. So all these, all the, this array of trophies that Bale has has lifted as a Real Madrid player kind of a, a par for the course as much as anything else. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an, it's just an odd, it's just an odd situation. I guess he's, he's swapped being a big fish in a small pond at, at Spurs for being a part of a, a ostensibly more sort of glitzy uh, and successful team but I think the, the sort of lesson is that even if it kind of all turns out exactly how you dreamt it if, if you you can you can score overhead kicks in Champions League finals and everything else but really there's something kind of at the, the very top level of football at the moment there's something kind of fundamentally unsatisfying about it uh, I think that the sort of the, the fact that by default you're always going to win, or, or you're almost always going to win, creates a bind. Like, what what what's the point of it? What are you there for? Yeah. Trophies are meant to be something to be sort of strived after, and and, and you, you know you're meant to kind of kill yourself in pursuit of success, and and that makes the the um, the kind of euphoria. Um, of winning, of winning a league or a Champions League, kind of all, all, all consuming. The problem is when it's when it's what's expected and when it's what happens and when you're just meeting ex- 
expectations by doing it. It kind of <laughs> raises the question of what the hell you're in it for in the first place. And, and I guess Bale is, is a sort of very extreme example of that uh, of that element of, of modern football. Yeah, the 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 fact that the clubs are, you know, just corporate corporate machines now to you know to to create capital and to be able to advertise and things like that but the the supporters still expect or most of them still expect you know some sort of uh, rapport some sort of um, as you say if you if you travel you know you learn the language or you have some you know you have some rapport with your teammates and, and he certainly doesn't doesn't do that he's a you know apparently he's a big he's a big golfer and he just goes out and golfs with his buddies and and he is welsh I, yeah yeah he loves his golf um I I I don't know if if you have any ties to Wales, but everybody I've met from Wales seems a tad aloof. Um, um, that, that, <laughs> could just be, that could just be me, and I apologize if you were if you know any Welsh uh, Welshman, but um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I assumed you did. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, chairman the, the chairman of Spurs, uh, Daniel Levy has built uh, has built a fancy new ground, so maybe that will uh, entice him back. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of I, I'm sort of in a position of being a supporter, uh, as you said, and it's it's like, well, uh, you just sort of find other things to sort of uh, to aim for or be excited about. You know, will you will you make the Champions League? Uh, you know, will Spurs finish above Arsenal? Will, but um, yeah, the trophies now, the capitalism and money has locked up. You know, the trophies for. You know, a, a very small pool of of clubs across the continent and in, and in the UK, and I and as you said, I, I don't I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the great thing about football is, I mean, I've just spent the last half an hour whinging about whinging about it and, and has what a, a dead end it the whole thing is. But at, at the end of the day, the pure kind of the pure uh, visceral excitement of watching eleven v eleven whichever two teams that might be will, will always appeal like no matter how much the odds are, will, will be weighted in favor of one side or the other you'll always tune in for that first 10 20 minutes you, you'll always want to watch a game of football you're always intrigued by how certain elements of the game are going to pan out like that it hasn't lost its excitement on a kind of micro level like i i, I absolutely have not stopped watching football but at the same time as soon as you zoom out of it, uh, the whole thing just looks <laughs> a pointless waste of time. But but then but then the next match comes around and and, and you, you want to watch it. Yeah, our our uh, I'll tell a quick story from my mate here because uh, one of our one of our friends is from Watford and a, lo- a lifelong Watford supporter. Our local pub is a is a Liverpool pub, so we've you know it's it's been a quite a season uh, before the lockdown when it was still open. Uh, about maybe two weeks before lockdown, the COVID lockdown, uh, Watford actually went out before they got relegated and just destroyed Liverpool. I believe it was Liverpool's only league loss of the of the campaign. Well, it, was, it was at that point, yeah. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, and and that memory, you know, now Watford are relegated, but it doesn't matter. That <laughs> that'll just remembering that we spent an afternoon, uh, you know, singing and teasing, you know. 75 Liverpool supporters for the one time this season was was a fun was a fun day out so yeah I suppose at that level um you know the that excitement will never die it still gives you moments 
Yeah, that's why I'm 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 hoping to to get uh, to get fans back in the ground because uh, that sort of helps too. We you know we don't get to many matches because we're you know three five thousand miles away, um, but you know watching them with fans is a little more exciting. I, I know I watched the Champions League final at the weekend, and uh, it was two top clubs, and I I thought it was a, a well played you know game was exciting enough. Um, but you know, it was the t- two rich teams to, that win their home leagues every year. And once the final whistle was blown and there's no fans there, it was sort of anticlimactic. Um, it's an odd, it's an odd, uh, spectacle, isn't it? Um, yeah, it was very strange. And, uh, you know, they've been, I don't know if they do this, uh, for you guys, but here, um, they, they pump in, uh, like the crowd noise, the din of the crowd, but then they, then, you know, they'll, they'll like crowd noise by algorithm. Yeah, then they'll pump in like a song or some drumming, and you look and you can see that there's no one there. <laughs> so it's just a it's a very odd uh, odd feel right now. Yeah, it's very it's, it's weird because especially if if you watch as much football as I do, then the crowd noise is is good and 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 almost entirely realistic, but not completely. So you know, if a shot if a shot is saved or whizzes past the post or Someone beats someone beats a man on the halfway line or whatever. The, the reaction sometimes is isn't quite loud enough, or or is weirdly a bit of an overreaction from the kind of uh, AI <laughs> AI crowd yeah. noise machine. So it, it, it's, it's it's a bit bizarre all around. The alternative is to watch it with no crowd noise, which is even worse and, and just makes you want to kill yourself. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little spooky. Well, Alex, I, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us. Um, I uh, who who do you who do you support? Do you do you have a particular club? I'm a, club li- you I'm a Liverpool fan. Right? Oh, uh, I, I, I wish I hadn't asked. Um, <laughs> well, I, I will spent say thirty that, years waiting for my club to win the league, and, and eventually, I, you know, it's interesting. My brother, my brother Kenny, is a Liverpool fan, and and uh, and that was the one thing about Liverpool winning the league. It, you know, they they beat out City, and I don't, I, you know, I I, I don't like United. Um, just because here in the States, uh, when the game started getting very popular in the late nineties, early two thousands, United was the, was the big, you know, juggernaut. And so a lot of the, um, a lot of American fans like latched on to United at that time. And, um, yeah, I don't like it. So I, I appreciated the Liverpool win because it wasn't, it wasn't sort of preordained, you know, it was, uh, you had to fight a long time to get it. And, uh. And so I don't, I don't mind it. Plus, uh, the fact of the matter is Liverpool were the best side, so that's perfectly fine. I'll give you that. True that enough. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. Yeah. Well, no, it's just pretty typical to have, to have waited three decades for it, and then when it comes, I'm kind of locked in my front room two, 200 miles away rather than... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that must have been an odd, an odd celebration. Uh, it's just, just, just you and your flat, just like, hooray, we did it. Well, again, I really appreciate you uh, coming on, and uh, hopefully we can speak again. Uh, Alex Hesk, his work can be found um, all over the internet in, in all the places I mentioned. Um, it's uh, very interesting stuff. If you are, uh, you have the same uh, interest as I do, um, so you can follow our show at uh, Patreon.com/slash The Highlands Bunker or on Twitter at Highlands Bunker. Thank you for joining. Left is best, everybody. Yeah.